0: Today on the AAMFT podcast, a very important topic that all of our listeners may not have thought about. In fact, up until about a year ago, it's something that I did not have. And that, my friends, is a professional will. A professional will is a document used by mental health providers to outline how the closing of a practice should be handled in the event of an unexpected closure, something like death or retirement or a termination of services. In the event of death or disability or some other unexpected circumstance that would prevent a therapist from continuing to provide services, a large number of tasks are typically needed to complete These may include notifying current people who were receiving services, closing the office or facility, closing out records, completing billing, and so forth. This professional will establishes a plan for the unexpected closure of a practice to ensure all of these tasks are adequately addressed. A professional will names an executor to typically, as we'll talk about today, another mental health professional who will take on the responsibility of handling legal issues and notifying those who have been receiving services. I sought out an LMFT, an expert in this area, and today, please help me welcome Dr. Ann Steiner. She earned her PhD from the California Professional School of Psychology in Berkeley. She is an LMFT and maintains a private practice in Lafayette, California, where she works with adults, couples, and is known for her pioneering work working with groups. And she has several books aimed at groups. But today, she's going to tell us all about professional wills. Dr. Steiner is a keynote speaker and preventer at professional and consumer organizations. She presents programs for national and international societies, such as the American Group Psychotherapy Association, the California Psychological Association, and the International Human Learning Resources. She also, as we'll talk about, has on-demand offerings around professional wills. So if you like what you hear and get you started, you can follow up further. You can also find lots of useful tools at her website, appropriately, psychotherapytools.com. We will be back after our talk with Anne. Dr. Ann Steiner, welcome to the AAMFT podcast. So happy to have you. This is a topic, as I was saying in the intro, that myself, practicing for 21 years, needs to know more about but we have gotten quite a few requests from our listeners all talking about professional wills not only are you an mft but you have expertise in this and that's why you're joining us today But first question is always if you listen to the show before we talk about professional wills how did you get involved in the mft profession and then specifically what we're going to talk about today.
1: First, it's really a pleasure to be here with you. I really appreciate your inviting me. This is a treat to be able to talk to people that are interested in the professional will and MFTs particularly. So I've been practicing for over about 30 years and my PhDs in clinical psychology and I got the MFT license mainly to be able to reach more people. And so the way I got into it, is a pretty long story. The short version would be that I grew up in the world of therapists. My father was a psychiatrist. I grew up knowing Virginia Satir and that whole crew. So it was a value about therapy and group and family work.
0: Virginia gets a lot of references on our podcast as we cover the history of the field and those that worked directly with her. And she's a very polarizing figure as people you either absolutely loved her or didn't. So I am curious before we start, you have a fond memory of Virginia Satir?
1: Oh my goodness, yeah, I grew up knowing her and I'm active in the International Human Learning Resource Network and Satir Global, two organizations that are carrying on her work and helping take her work into the, the work that she did towards the latter years of her work of peacemaking basically and trying to help groups that are so divided come together and find their commonalities. So for me, there are a lot of core values that are very important.
0: She was a very misunderstood person and that she was not given her due. She passed away in 1988 till later, but we could have a whole different show. And maybe we will on that. But no, that's great that you have that type of background in your lineage, so to speak. But everybody should know what a will is your last living will and testament but what is exactly is a professional will Annie?
1: a professional will is a document that you put together to help or colleagues that you hand pick know what your wishes are in terms of taking care of your practice in the event of your expected or unexpected absence. And a lot of people aren't aware, especially all kinds of therapists mature and early career, have never heard of the therapist professional will. And it's really the cornerstone of a good practice is to have one. And the short version again on that would be that it provides a safety net for you, your practice, your family, and your community. It's a very important part of our practice to have that. The ethics of absolutely every single professional association require that we have one. And most of us, when we just automatically, we get the renewal notice. And part of the renewal notice says that I agree to abide by the ethics of whatever your particular professional association is. And all of them, including MFT, have something either very specific that uses the language professional will or something that addresses what a professional will does, which is having a system in place for taking care of your practice in the event of your
0: absence. So perhaps I'm working in an agency setting or a group practice. So this is not only for private practitioners. So talk about, again, why I need it, as you were talking about what it is, why I need it, and then what are the benefits, the benefits of having high. it?
1: When the why I need it is, let me count the ways. First, it's peace of mind, and for those, People, this past year, it's really been interesting. COVID has been a real wake up call and a reminder that all of us, regardless of age, health status, sociocultural location, we all need to have some kind of a backup system in place. It will help us prevent chaos for your practice, your patients, your family, and friends during temporary or permanent absences and after your death or an incapacitating injury or illness. Even a death in the family or an unexpected happy thing that happens may cause you to need to cancel patients and somebody else may need to actually do that for you. I, for example, if I get a cold and I lose my voice, I need my bridge therapist to be able to have the phone numbers of patients and access to my calendar to be able to call people and say Dr. Steiner is unavailable for the next week. She's okay. This is what's going on. I'm going to be the contact person, and that's for the temporary purpose. And then for family emergencies, many therapists that are well-trained to skillfully terminate with patients, very few have taken the necessary steps to prepare for their unexpected temporary or permanent terminations that can result from personal incapacity, car accident, or sudden unexpected death and so the basic bottom line is the concept of a professional will is like detailing your wishes for the continuing care of your patients and it resonates with most healthy with all of us but and what I keep finding is that every people that once they understand it, they go, "Oh, that's a great idea!" Or they take my workshop and they're delighted and they love the material and they're all jazzed about it. And they get home and it goes to the bottom of their pile because new things come in on top of the pile. And what I found after at one conference where I was presenting every year is that people were basically hiding from me in the elevator. And then. They would say to me later, I was hiding from you because I hadn't done it. I had had all the paperwork ready to do it, and I didn't do it. And that got me really interested in what gets in the way and trying to find new ways to help people actually do and complete it, because it is a daunting
0: task. What gets in the way is sometimes ignorance of knowing, even as you said, it is referenced in part of our AMFT code of ethics, not necessarily a term professional will, but how you ensure confidentiality and safety and in care of your record keeping. So one of the reasons people don't do it is just ignorance. They don't know about it. And then other reason is could be they hey, they assume it's just, if I'm, should I pass away? You bring up many other instances where even young clinicians may need it. They, an illness, you lose your voice. So Part of it is we're just not thinking that, hey, I need to have this. When people start a private practice, many people meet with a lawyer and they go over their paperwork and they do things like this. But what you're saying is this should just be standard practice for all clinicians. What are the essential components of a professional? will say, I know nothing about it. I haven't taken a workshop or anything like that let's outline it, the minimal requirements needed in a professional.
1: There's The practical and the emotional is what I've discovered over the Mm -hmm. years. So the practical is to start moving towards having a centralized electronic health record system. That makes it a lot easier for you and anybody who might have to step in temporarily or permanently to access your calendar, your client summaries and all of that kind of information. So that makes things easier. It's way easier and more effective to do it as a team. Now I know I'm biased because I'm very group and family oriented, but groups are very powerful. One of the things I think stops people is that they find it hard to pick a group of people they trust, in fact, and I can give you an example of that from my own experience, but in terms of the logistics of what you actually need, you need the willingness, you need the commitment, you've got to be up for dealing with your own personal denial around things can happen to you, and, and then there are also sociocultural values that we need to think about in terms of our values and beliefs about death and dying and, for example, whether we should talk openly about that with our family members about what our wishes are and whether we want our parents to do that. And the assumption that many people have is an ethno-eurocentric perspective on that, that everybody should have the same values. So we need to be aware of the people we're serving and what their values are about those things because that influences how you're going to handle what you ask the people who are going to take care of your practice in your absence. With some people will be different. It may be more of a really culturally inappropriate thing to share some information and for other people it might be more appropriate. So the setting aside time to work on it has been the major thing that I've found for people, doing it with a group, planning to follow through when it gets hard, and that includes creating an action timeline. So that's basically, you know, what I found was that it was so difficult for people to do this on their own. That's why I created this downloadable system and why I'm doing this, the, the workbook, is that people get to a certain point and then when they look around at who they're gonna pick to be on their team, and I should move into telling you how I have this structure, is then they look around and they go, wow, I only know people my own age that I'm, whose skills I'm comfortable referring to. And that can be a real stumbling block right there, is that people tend to, especially therapists, tend to cluster with people our own age and not know people that are especially younger so it's a perfect opportunity, the professional will, for early career clinicians to connect with people about my age, say, who need people to, that are younger than them rather than all their cohort that is going to be retiring and not practicing. It's always fine to have at least one person on your team that's retired. That can be really helpful. But it's nice to have the benefit of younger people being able to take over and possibly continue with some of your patients.
0: As we talk about your action plan and the steps, so who you select, and you talk about a team. So does it need to be a mental health professional or someone with the same license that you have? Or can it be an administrative person or someone that you trust that is really organized? When we're talking about how to administer obviously in the unfortunate event of your passing or even if you're going to be away a long time to notify people. So let's talk about the qualifications of the person that you select or the team if it's more than one person? And if it is going to be more than one person, what are the pros and cons of that?
1: That's a great question, and it really is key. So the way I prefer people to set these up is to have what I call an emergency response team, which is a collection of clinicians who, between four and eight people maximum, depending on your setting and work environment and how many patients you have. Like a psychiatrist might want a lot of people because they tend to have a really large caseload. Or somebody, a social worker in a hospital setting might really need a lot of people to be able to make the phone calls. So it's a team. And then there's there's a bridge therapist whose job it is to basically be the contact person. If something happens to me, if I lose my voice, I call or email or text my bridge therapist. That's the key person. Now, people automatically assume that if they're married to a therapist, that person would be the automatic person to make their bridge therapist. And actually, it's better to not be your best friend or your spouse if they're also in the field, because they're going to be dealing with all the hot, really difficult stuff and organizing it and they're gonna also, if if this is an end of life type of situation, then they're gonna be dealing with their own grief or distress about the accident that you just had and having to manage organizing the emergency response team to come together and divvy up who's gonna call which patients and decide and look at the list of patients to see before it's divvied up whether anybody knows any of them and has a dual relationship and should basically then excuse themselves from the conversation about that particular patient
0: that's a great point in fact my wife is an lmft and i was thinking yes that's a logical person but you make a lot of sense if in my untimely passing she's going to be dealing with other things so it really is multiple people so the bridge person definitely should be a licensed mental health professional for sure
1: some of us are not so good at organizing and some people really are. So the bridge therapist could have somebody that's a trained office staff person handle some of the administrative things that are not clinical. But we need trained licensed clinicians, does not need to be also an MFT, could be anybody that's a licensed mental health provider. So that's any of the disciplines, social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, not a chiropractor, because chiropractors don't understand and have training in the impact of both trauma and loss and transference and what it means to get a phone call saying, your therapist is not going to be able to see you this week. She just had emergency bypass surgery. She should be fine. I'm available to help with you. That needs to be a clinician making that phone call.
0: Let me ask you another question related to that. I have colleagues all over the country. Should this be someone, a mental health professional, licensed in the state where you are seeing your clients if you were the what we're calling the bridge therapists
1: it's easier if they're in your location now I'm gonna call this the olden days when we met in person and when we had paper charts and we had in my garage for example I have four metal file cabinets locking file cabinets filled with old patient records because at some point somebody's gonna have to go through those so I'm gradually moving all digitizing all of that so that it'll make it easier for my team. But the advantage it used to be you could all meet just in person, but now you can all meet on Zoom. The laws, however, in different states are different. So it's ideal if they're at least in your same state and the issue is really thinking about who will work well with your people in a short-term crisis it's basically like a triage situation it is first their first job is to let usually is to let your patients know that you won't be able to meet with them and then to find out and to assess whether they are in crisis with hearing that so if you're working with a high risk population for example and you've got somebody who lives with fighting to want to live and battles feeling suicidal a lot and then they learn that something dreadful happened to you the person who calls them needs to be sensitive to their needs and be able to offer services for them and know what the emergency services are in their area. That's easier to do if they're local but it's not impossible to do out of state. Just a little more challenging, a little more work. Does that make sense?
0: It makes a lot of sense. I'm also thinking how you practice. If you have a group practice or a part of a group practice, it seems like that could be a nice natural team where you could draw your team from. You could be a team member of other people in your group. I'm thinking many of our listeners though that hang their shingle by themselves and maybe practice more in isolation that trying to find well qualified people to be part of the team could be a somewhat of a challenge. What are your suggestions for people that don't really necessarily have a group, as you said, maybe they're older and maybe let's say they are many master's level clinicians dependent on third party providers to get paid, and most of that has gone electronic. So many people have, as you said, electronic records now, but there are still many listeners out there that have, like you said, in the file cabinet, and they may have a computer, but they don't have electronic records. So two questions. What if I don't know how to identify a team, number one, and number two, if I don't have this simplified electronic process?
1: Yeah. So this is where I find people run out of steam, is the issue of coming up with their team. And part of what the benefit of doing the six-hour law and ethics workshops that I do is that we really hammer out the details and have people break out into breakout groups and work out how they're going to actually do this. And one of the things that people often find is that if they are working in isolation, that they need to go out of their way to begin to really think about where they can meet other clinicians that they might begin to get to know and consider taking on this role of being on their uh, emergency response team. My bias is that the best way to do it is to, I'll do it for you and you'll do it for me with people that you trust and figuring out who you would trust to do that is a project. A lot of local organizations have networking things and there are more and more events that are online where you can begin to get to know people and talk in the chat and say, I'm starting my professional will, you, are you also interested in doing yours? It's easier to do as together. What I found is that it's very difficult for people to do all the, de- the nitty gritty stuff about this on their own and having the moral support of doing it as a team really helps so the example that I was thinking of before is years ago the Family Networker came out with a one-page or two-page article about the professional will and I got really excited about it and I brought it to my networking group and we met monthly and everybody agreed it was a great idea and every month I would say how are people doing with it eight months in nobody else had done it but me And I was puzzled by that, and I started getting curious. How does that work? Then what's going on, what gets in the way? And then when I started thinking about it and working further online, in fact, there were people in that group that I personally wasn't that comfortable referring to. So I wouldn't want them on my team. So that kind of blocked it. So first thing is thinking about people that you trust, and you can turn your emergency response team in, either from or into, a consultation group. So, uh, for example, Cecil Rice, who's a major figure in the group therapy world, he wrote something along the lines of, as someone who does a lot of group work, I see the value of group support everywhere. And he said to consider the professional will as, from the group perspective with your ERT in the role of a trusted group. And like if there was the, he's one of many groups I know about that formed group in response to an admired therapist passing away and they were mindful then they of creating an emotional container for each other because they also had suffered a loss. So there's that benefit when you do it as well as if you're going to have, say, knee replacement surgery or something along those lines. You, you, it would be really good to have people you trusted, that you let them know in advance, if you don't have a consultant. And one of the people in the group is likely to say, so you're gonna be on pain meds after this. How are you gonna handle that and scheduling patients after the surgery? And have a group of people that you trust to kind of borrow, I think, because I work a lot with people with chronic pain, came up with this idea of borrowing someone's brain that's a temporary loan so there are somebody else's brain works better than yours so it's having people who will look at the situation that you're going through from an outside perspective and say well, you might want to think about this
0: we have a lots of professionals practicing in isolation but they have a consultation group maybe a book club or something and maybe it's partly social but it's also to stay connected and relevant people lose steam but if everybody is working on it i think it would give you motivation that's a built-in content and it does motivate you and there is your team right there. So I think for all those groups out there of professional consultation and peer group once you're licensed to think of, hey, this is built in content, we need to do it anyway. And it's like the buddy system, but I love hearing that. Now we'll keep going with the action plan, but what's the difference between a bridge therapist and a professional executor?
1: So it's very interesting. When I started researching this, I spoke to a number of attorneys And the concern was, the first attorney that I consulted with said, you cannot call it a professional will. Hands down, you cannot do that. This is over 24 years ago. The reason being, it would be too confusing between a a regular will and a professional. There are people who are hired as professional executors of people's estates, and that would be confusing. So she wanted me to call it something else. I, for years I had it a different name and then people kept referring to my work as work with a professional and I got back in touch with her and I said, what do you think? And she said, the people have spoken. If that's the way it's being seen and the way it's being referred to actually in the ethics now at that point, then yes, you can call it that. But, uh, so I prefer calling it a bridge therapist than a professional executive, just to make it clear that this is not a legal commitment it's not actually a technically a legal binding document it is almost more aspirational that in that it's saying what your wishes are i there are there a are few protocols I've seen out there where they recommend having notary do it, notarize it. The advice I've gotten is that's really not necessary. In terms of the bridge therapist, the main thing is that person needs to be reliable and dependable and good at and willing to stop everything in an emergency and make phone calls on your behalf.
0: Yes, that is a primary part of the action plan. If this is a good time to talk about a lawyer's role in the process, please do that and then continue on with the action plan.
1: So the lawyer's role really is simply to let them know you're working on it. What I do when I do the workshops is I have people do a draft. So you at least have a rough draft of yours. And you keep that in your locked file cabinet in a red hanging file folder. When I was doing these in person, I handed out red hanging file folders It was on everybody's little desk. And people would wonder, what is this? And it had a collection of things in it. But the idea is to make it very easy to find. And so you let your attorney know that you're working on your professional will so that when there comes a time at the end of your practice if you aren't able to let them, to verbally let them know what's going on, they're posted, they've been kept posted, they know who's in your team, and they'll expect that if something happens even temporarily and somebody has to take over your finances or something like that, just like if your wife had to take over your finances, if you had a surgery that was major, she might take over the paying the bills or something like that, and you're, attorney might need to be notified of that, possibly. But basically, it's a document they just need to know about so that when people are winding down their practice, which is what our goal for most of us is, to wind down our practice in a deliberate, planful way, rather than have an emergency end our practice, which happens way too often, is that then there's a system in place for the dismantling of your practice and the costs and all the work that goes into that. And your attorney then knows if you have an estate plan, they'll have you do you designate somebody that's going to handle your finances, you do your will, and then your The state plan includes your advanced health care directive. So this is like an advanced health care directive for your practice.
0: So somebody is going to make the calls in your absence. That's essential. What else do we need to have in that plan?
1: First is you have to decide who's going to make it because because most of us have too many patients to have one person have to call within 24 hours.
0: Hence the team.
1: Hence the team. And you divvy it up. And then one way you divvy up, and it's good to have one, if a lot of people have an entirely or partially third-party payer practice, for those people, that's it's actually a good deal easier because if they check their contract, probably says that in the end, of, the end of their closing their practice, they are required to have all the patients referred back to the managed care company for them to refer out. Some companies do that some are okay with your just notifying them that you are temporarily not accepting patients or you're referring people out but it's a good idea to have at least one person if you take managed care at least one person who can work with people that are dealing with managed care so that if reports are needed or things like that they're familiar with how to do that so that the team be diverse really helps and it's Breaking it down is the responsibility of the bridge therapist. It's basically assigning okay, can you take five people to call today? And then here's this other five people. Looking at the top list, another practicality that I have people do is think about your list of patients and who are those people that are more vulnerable and that may need more urgent care. Some people in that category may have a psychiatrist, in which case the bridge therapist or the emergency response team member who takes that particular patient on their list could just call the psychiatrist and let the psychiatrist decide whether the psychiatrist should be the one to say something has happened. If it's a temporary thing, it could just be, Just wanted to let you know she's going to be out of the office, won't have a voice for the next four weeks, but she'll be back.
0: And I'm available for emergencies. Obviously, if you pass away, there's a story behind that. You may or may not want your clients to know that. Or if you're temporarily stepping away, you might not want. So you probably also need to instruct your bridge therapist or team of what to disclose and what not to disclose about why you You're were not present, present correct?
1: correct? Exactly, and this is where it gets really complicated and takes time in the workshops, is both that question and then in, in the event of your death, who, you, who, which patients to notify. Some people would be, you don't want to notify somebody that, that ended angrily, but for people that are long-term, I'm a big fan of termination. And I see termination as the most important and difficult phase of therapy. So going back, to, trying to go back to your question, because there's so many pieces to that to unpack, um, I think it might be useful for me to tell you the example of my father. After this situation with the networking group, where it became clear nobody was going to do it for each other, I then started looking for people that I could trust, that I put together my emergency response team with, and then I started trying to get my dad, who was an older psychiatrist. If, if you can imagine, if he worked with Virginia and studied with her, he was a 60's therapist. And for younger therapists, they might not know what I mean by that. That means that his boundaries were not what is considered appropriate standards now.
0: If he worked with Virginia, he was okay with touching people.
1: That's for sure. Yeah. And his office was in the home and I grew up knowing some of the people because he bartered for services. Now people don't do that now. So I tried to get him to do something like a professional will and he wasn't going to need it. So I didn't get very far. And this was early on before I was really digging deep into this whole process. And then he became ill, and finally it became clear that he was terminally ill. And he at that point had one consultation group and one long-term therapy group. He was in hospice at that point. His wife's getting phone calls. And this is what we want to try and avoid, is somebody that's not a clinician getting phone calls from patients. And so i sat him down and i said i really need to know the names and phone numbers of everybody you're currently seeing and we need to be able to have a group session for you to say goodbye to everybody and at that point that he actually had pancreatic cancer it had gone to his brain so his brain wasn't working too well so he was in complete denial i don't know what you're talking about i don't need that and i just had to really push him so i got all the names of everybody and i said he is terminally ill and I am committed to making sure that we have one farewell session for everybody and this was a group that had met for probably 25 years with him and they occasionally met without him sometimes they met in the office and looked at videos that he had done with them without him so this was the way they operated they all knew me and I just said, I'm making that commitment. And then I started calling around to get somebody. I realized, wow, I'm gonna lead a group with my dad who's psychiatric and he's like cognitively impaired right now. And he goes in and out of being present, staying in tune with saying goodbye to these people. And I didn't, I realized I really need a co-therapist. So I called around, I got one senior therapist who agreed to co-lead this with me And then she called me the next day and said, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't. I think I had two, maybe three people bail on me. Very painful. And then I went back to him, I said, who else can I ask? Please rack your brain, who else can I ask? And he said, maybe this person in my consultation group. These are all senior clinicians. And one of them agreed to do it, which was great. So we set up the date and we're in a facility at that point, so I set it up, we had boxes of Kleenex, set it up with this, my new co-therapist across from me, and I wheel my dad in, and things are going pretty well, and then about halfway through, I say, my dad has written these notes for everybody that he wanted me to give each of you. And the co-therapist said, how about if you have everybody read those out loud? And I thought I would die at the moment because I couldn't remember whether I had succeeded in getting him to make them a tailored goodbye letter to each person or whether it was like a, quote, form letter, which would be horrible. Anyway, the good news was that I had succeeded in getting him to do it personalized for each person, and it was very touching and powerful. And we wrapped up, and it really helped them. They then met with the co-therapist one time afterwards, They knew they could continue to meet with her after that, but it allowed them to say goodbye, and it gave me the idea, I was already really focused on termination and really talking about their goodbye process with people beforehand, of doing farewell letters. Then the next most difficult thing I did when I put together my professional will system for people is I have sample letters for people that are templates. One is to be sent in the event of my death. One is to be sent in the event of my temporary absence so that people can use their own language but they know essentially beginning, middle, and end. You came into therapy looking for this. This is the progress you made. This is what I wish for you. This is what I wish I could say to you if we were able to terminate in, or say goodbye in person.
0: In our tradition of MFT, especially in our post Modern models like narrative of therapeutic letter writing to contextualize gains, and this is something that you have ready to go as a powerful story. Thank you sharing about your dad. But some therapists would be like, "Whoa, how am I? I can't violate a client's confidentiality. So how am I going to handle that even to start with?" Which leads to how this should be mentioned in the informed consent process or therapist opening paperwork. Whether you're a healthy therapist or a sick therapist, but how do we? get around this? Because, uh, you know, some person, oh, I can't uh, just let somebody call up my clients without letting them know. Uh, that's a breach of confidentiality. How do we handle that?
1: Great question and very important. So AMFT says in their non-abandonment section that you don't abandon or neglect clients in treatment without making reasonable arrangements for continuation of treatment. And yes. also that you don't disclose client confidence except by written authorization or waiver. Or where mandated or permitted by law. Okay, so what almost all states have, and you may want to double check with your state, is that if it is in the best interest of the client, you then can waive confidentiality. Now, one place where people get confused about the way I do the professional will is that nobody's going to have any confidential information until there is an emergency of some sort. The professional will has nothing confidential in it. It just has the name of the people and what your wishes are. The name of the emergency response team and what your wishes are for taking care of your practice. So there's nothing confidential in it. It has the instructions for how your bridge therapist can access your confidential information when needed in the event of an emergency. So you can waive confidentiality when it's in the best interest of the patient. And abandoning patients is the worst thing we can do. So this is the antidote, is that when there's an emergency, I used to have a graphic that I would show of walking up and the number of people I've had in my practice that have had this happen to them. they go up they go for their appointment and there's a note on the door that's saying so-and-so the therapist has canceled all appointments please call this person or so-and-so just died just terrible the ways people have learned about the death of their therapist have been really traumatic it's waived in these kinds of conditions
0: what about putting this in an informed consent paperwork early on or talking about this with your clients. It seems like it would be a perfect time to talk about, we talk about harm to self, harm to others, or other ways confidentiality is breached. Like you said, this response team does not get access to private, health information other than the name and contact information. What should you tell clients if you're having this conversation with them? You're putting your team together, you're following the action plan, and you have your professional will. What is your obligation to tell your current?
1: So this is, I love this question because it's so important. And I agree with you that it does need to be at the outset, much easier that way. It's just part of the beginning therapy with somebody. This is part of your office practices. So it's important to not only include mention of your emergency response team or your covering therapist in the opening paperwork, but to talk about it. So what I always do is I have my office policies. I have people read it with me and ask any questions and what's been really interesting is that since I've added this section to my office policies where I say something along the lines of just like you unexpected things can happen to me in the event of my something unexpected happening to me I have a designated trusted colleague who has agreed to cover for me in the event of my absence whose name is and some people decide to put the name and the phone number in there policies and then have a discussion about that and what's been remarkable is that so far I haven't heard anybody say anything but boy I really appreciate how thorough you are that you're really thinking about and you take this so seriously that yeah that things happen and that you have a way for me to know how I can get help and that you're thinking about my well-being so having a section in your office policies really matters
0: And a related question, the client may want a copy of their records or a part of their record. So, if it is not appropriate for the bridge person to have access to that right away, what should you put in the action plan, the professional will, about how a client has access to their file after your untimely passing.
1: So this is a really interesting piece of it, is that Florida has a law that requires people to take out an ad in a newspaper of the largest circulation in the nearest large town announcing your death. Obviously you don't do that if you're not here, but your responsible person does. So that could be your bridge therapist does that in Florida. And trick here is that's probably going to be the responsibility of the bridge therapist is to have be the main contact person for people getting their records. There are some situations where you may feel that it's clinically not in the patient's best interest to have the full record but to hand it to pass it along with their release to the next therapist. So that's why part of my system includes really pushing people to have good case summaries that are like a paragraph. So the way I think about it is if you go on vacation, do you have somebody covering for you? What's interesting, not everybody does these days. A lot of people really don't take clean vacations where they're really unplugged completely. This is one gimmick that I've come up with is to have a, just a snapshot. So when you go on vacation and you have somebody covering for you, what I do is I just spend five minutes with my the person who's covering for me. And I say, these are the people that might call that I've told them, that I've you, given them your contact information because they're in crisis. But if I was working with domestic violence or people that were higher risk, I would also list those people. And I would tell those people as well, this is the person who's covering for me.
0: People are going to be certainly curious to find out more. Your book to come out sometime over the course of the next year, late 2022, early 2023. In the meantime, if I want to learn more about this and where do I go? What do I do?
1: I would encourage people to email me directly. And the email would be info at drsteiner.com. And that's S-T-E-I-N-E-R. And then the main thing is my website, which is psychotherapytools.com. Updating it with tips and information about the
0: professional will. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and wisdom. Eli back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Hope you learned a lot about professional wills. You can follow up with all of those resources that Ann mentioned at psychotherapytools.com where you'll see everything you need to know about professional wills, including the on-demand courses that she mentioned and her books. And again, if you're interested in group work, as many of our systemic thinkers are, Dr. Steiner is a great resource for that as well, including her newest book, How to Create and Sustain Groups That Thrive from Rutledge. Also from Rutledge, you can check out my new book with Dr. Adrian Blow, who will assume the president elect role of the AAMFT in January? A friend and colleague talking about the common factors that bind us together as relational healers, systemic thinkers, infused to the core of the show and how I interview guests. But a lot of people want to say, What are you up to, Eli? And you can find out everything you need to know and give us feedback on the AMFT podcast, including suggestions for guests or topics like that, professional wills, which is one. I got a lot of requests for her, so we listen to you, the listener. Get a hold of me at Eli at Center.com. You can also find me at www.elikaram.com, elikaram.com. Find out everything going on in my world of systemic therapy. And for the podcast, you want to go to org. You'll find every back installment of the podcast, four seasons worth. You can also find us where you find your favorite podcasts, whether that be Spotify, Google Play, my personal favorite Apple podcast. We appreciate a star rating and review, helping us rise through the ranks of the mental health podcast. It only takes a second, and it's so important for me and the continued health of the show. So we appreciate everything our listeners do, whether you're an experienced systemic thinker or you're just getting on board with loving couple and family therapy. We appreciate you. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.